All right, kia ora. Welcome. It's nice to see you here. Uh, whether you're here at Botany or watching this down in, in Hastings, kia ora to you. Uh, or if you're listening or watching this on the internet as well, it's great to have you with us. Beginning of this ministry year, which for us is February, not January, when we kind of kick things off for the year, um, at the start of this year, though, in February, we had a Vision Sunday where we talked a little bit about some um, key things that are happening this year as part of our 15-year multiply vision. Um, one of those things is, of course, that we're starting the Satellite Church in Hastings, and they've actually taken a few weeks to kind of prepare for that and rest up for that. So they are actually starting this morning, as I'm speaking now, in about 20 minutes. And so if you're watching this in Hastings, you're actually watching this about six weeks behind us, and that's okay, but we are so tremendously excited that you're part of this and part of our church family, even though you're some distance from us. So I actually want to stop and pray uh, for them right now. We have no idea whether two people are showing up at Harataki and Shona's house or whether there's 20 or somewhere in the middle or more or no one. We have no idea, and we're just trusting God with that. But I just want to pause and uh, right now just commit them to God. So we can do that. Abba, thank you for this new venture that we are striking out on as a church family together. Uh, being a one church in these two locations of Auckland and Hastings. And we just feel like you've led us in this direction, that you've taken us here far earlier than we were expecting to. But we've chosen to step out in faith and obedience to what we believe the Spirit is calling us to do um, alongside Harataki and Shona. And so we pray for them today as uh, our Hastings satellite kind of gets going for the first time. And we pray for however many or few come today. Lord, as I texted Harataki this morning, we don't worry about the numbers as much as you bring the right people along today. So would you do that? Would you be at work in the hearts of the people who come? Would you unify them together as a little house church starting off hoping that you would do really cool things among them and in them in Flaxmere and in the wider Hastings area? And God, for those who come and who don't yet know you as their personal Lord and Saviour, we pray that you would draw them into your family through trusting in Jesus. So we commit them to you today, our Fano in Hastings. Pray that you would bless this work for your glory alone. Amen. So that's pretty cool. Slightly emotional, sorry, but pretty excited about what's happening as part of that. And we announced that back on Vision Sunday. Um, we also announced on Vision Sunday that we were launching something we were calling the Multiply Project, which was a goal uh, to raise $100,000 over this year, over and above our regular giving, to launch Hastings and to pay for, whole new, pay for whole new cameras and technology that we would need here to pull this off and put some money aside for a youth pastor. And I'm really pumped. I don't know if you've been looking at your bulletin yet, but um, so far we've raised $19,000 for the Multiply Project, which is absolutely staggering. And... Um, yeah, so thank you to those who have chosen to give so far to that. That's just a really exciting launch um, of, of this project and this goal that we've got for this year. And uh, we're going to be issuing some giving receipts in the next few weeks once that's sorted. And um, our challenge was that maybe you'd consider giving that rebate back as well. So we're hoping that that 19K will continue to grow, but it's just an outstanding beginning. And I'm super excited by that. So thank you for that. 
The other thing that we talked about on Vision Sunday with this whole idea of multiply, especially for this year, is that our goal this year is to raise the evangelistic temperature of our church. Our theme this year is love right where you are, and we want to take up the call of God that we would be witnesses and missionaries in this place that God has placed us, that he's planted us wherever we are, whether that's Botany, whether it's Hastings, whether that's someone else, somewhere else. And um, our prayer is that, that our evangelistic temperature would rise this year, that we would get more passionate and more excited maybe than we've ever been before or maybe than we've been in the last few months or years about sharing our faith in Jesus with all the people around us. And so that's what we're going after this year and this theme of love right where you are. And so uh, the series we started this year with was in the book of Jonah. And uh, I'm so excited by the feedback that I've received from people who have thoroughly enjoyed but also been very challenged by the story of this wayward prophet. Um, because the whole idea of this first series in Jonah was for us to come to the point where we recognize, as the Jewish people do in the synagogue every year, I am Jonah. That, that Jonah, this person who runs from God and who disobeys God and who isn't that excited about sharing his faith and who's honestly very apathetic about lost people, who was more excited, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, about his plant than about a city full of lost people. Um, I think the whole idea of that Jonah series was for us to come to the point where we recognize I'm Jonah. This is me. This is my life. This is my heart. And I can really... Uh, really feel like I'm, I'm a, a soul brother uh, with, with this guy. That was the point of that series, and today we're starting a new series. It's still part of this theme of love right where you are, but it's a series on prayer. And for these next five weeks, what we want to do is we want to take this, this recognition that we've come out of the book of Jonah with, that, that actually I'm Jonah, that I don't love as much and don't share as much and don't care as much as I ought to, and so we want to take five weeks in this little topical series to then pray. And we want to pray that God would change us, that he would make us, each of us, less like Jonah and more like Jesus. And so what we're going to invite you to do over these next five weeks, and that's what this new journal is about too, if you've got that in your hands here at Botany, is we want to pray five prayers Open my eyes, which is what we're doing today, that we would actually see lost people the way that Jesus does. And then next week we want to pray, open my heart. Help me to actually care and love like Jesus does. And then thirdly, we're going to pray, open my schedule. In the busyness of life, God, would you help me make room for people? And then the fourth one will be, open my ears. God, would you help me to be aware of the conversations around me and the moments that maybe you create for me to speak into that I can keep missing. And would you help me too to open my ears to the promptings and the whispers of the Holy Spirit as you move me? And then finally, open my mouth. God, would you help me to boldly but lovingly share what I believe when you create that opportunity? That's, that's our prayer over these next five weeks. This is going to be a topical series. We're not basing this out of one part of Scripture. We're doing um, some different passages. But for each one of these, we're going to uh, zero in on one particular passage. And so this morning's passage, if you've got a Bible with you, is Matthew chapter 9. 
Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at a little episode in the life of Jesus, the way that Matthew tells his story, as we think about this first prayer that we are praying today, Open My Eyes. Now, if you've got a journal, by the way, which I just mentioned, which we've handed out as you came in this morning here at Botany, and uh, we'll get some down to Hastings as well. And of course, it's also available on our Botany Life app if you want to jump on that and get it electronically. Um, Let me just say a word about the journal. So there's some sermon uh, notes pages for these five messages, plus a a Mother's Day one that's going to be at the end of that series. And then after the sermon pages, there's a page with a prayer on it. Um, It's in five paragraphs, and it's a prayer that I've written to go with this five-part series. And so we're going to end this message today by praying the prayer, open my eyes, and then as we go through the series, we're going to pray each of those paragraphs before God. And then at the end of the journal is some study questions. We did this for Jonah, if you've been part of that, where I challenged you, rather than listening to what Brad tells you is in the text, my challenge was for you to dive into Jonah and and look at the, the passage for yourself before you came to hear the message. And so I'm giving you that challenge again, and what you'll see is if you turn to the back of of the journal, um, it's the opening chapter of the letter called 1 Peter. That's where we're going to go next after this series in the middle of May once we've done Mother's Day, and so I'm giving you the beginning of 1 Peter now. So my invitation is for you to get well ahead of me. And for you to actually read First Peter for yourself, instead of I've taken the questions I wrote for the Jonah ones, and I've just tweaked them a little bit, because studying a letter in the New Testament is different slightly than studying a book or a story. Um, and so it's a slightly different set of questions. But my invitation and challenge to you is start jumping into First Peter. Start reading First Peter for yourself and marking it in the journal there and making your own notes. And then when we jump in in May, you'll be able to correct everything that I say that's wrong, which will be outstanding. All right, so that's the journal. And this morning we're beginning this little series called Open My Eyes. Now, you may not have noticed this morning, but I actually have new glasses on today. I have done my uh, some yearly, um, probably not quite as quick as I should, but I, you know, I have to go and see the optometrist every few years and get an update to my uh, prescription of my lenses. I've worn glasses since I was nine years old, and the teacher sent home a note to say, I've moved Bradley to the front of the room and he still can't read the blackboard properly. And um, that's my problem. I'm short-sighted, so I can't see things long distance away, and I also have something called astigmatism, which means there's something wrong with the curvature or smoothness of my eyeball, which makes things even more fuzzy. And I have a wonderfully unique and complex blend of those two things very differently in my two eyes. And so my prescription that I need is incredibly powerful, and if I didn't get ultra-thin lenses, which cost a ridiculous amount of money, I would have Coke bottles up here, (laughs) um, which is not fun. So every few years, I have to go back to the optometrist, go see spec savers, and um, get another test and get a new set of glasses because ever since I was nine, my eyes have slowly been deteriorating. My challenge this time is that I have hit that magical age, which for women, the optometrist told me this a couple of weeks ago, for women is early to mid-40s and for men is mid to late 40s when you suddenly realise you can't quite read the text of the book that you used to be able to read. And I have to confess this morning that I have scoffed at a few of you who are good friends who reached that age 
and needed reading glasses because I arrogantly thought that because I'm short-sighted and I've never had a problem reading, that that would not affect me. And about a year ago, I began to notice lying in bed that it really does affect me. And so for the last year, I've put off going to the optometrist and I've laid in bed reading a book when the light's not that great from the lamp. And so I've had my normal glasses on and then perched on the end of my nose, I've had a pair of Rochelle's reading glasses. <laughs> so I've had two sets of glasses to help my eyes to read this book. And every now and then, I'll hear my wife next to me just roll over and look at me and start to giggle because of how ridiculous it looked. And so I'm tired of that. Sorry, honey. But, um, you know, I decided I needed to go to the optometrist and actually get these sorted. And so I have what are called progressive lenses, which means I look out here and see you. And when I come here, I look down through the bottom, which I'm still getting used to. And I feel like I'm looking down my nose at, at the Bible, which is not a good tone to have. Um, but I can actually read my text slightly better than I could. The reality is that without my glasses, I can still see, but I cannot see well. You're all a blur. It's fuzzy. My, the world around me without these is, I can see stuff, I can see you, kind of, but you're very blurry blobs. No offence. And I need, and I'm so grateful for the technology of glasses that bring precision and help me to see clearly. And what is true physically for me is also true spiritually for me. Sin so taints us and our sinful nature so impacts us that it impacts every part of who we are and part of what it does to us is it affects the way we see the world. Because we're sinful people and sin has completely touched every part of us, we don't see clearly. We don't see spiritual truths and spiritual realities and the spiritual realm the way we should. And so what we need is God to not only change our hearts and to save us and forgive us, we actually need God to do something with our eyes. We need God to help us see the world the way the world really is. And that's really the big idea that I want us to get today as we come and pray this first prayer this morning, Open My Eyes. I want to suggest that we need God to give us glasses so that we can see lost people the way he sees lost people. I'm not saying that, that as Christians we don't see lost people around us. We do. But I don't think we see them clearly. I don't see, think that we see with clarity. I think what we see is kind of a bit furry and a bit blurry and a bit fuzzy, we don't actually see the reality of what's going on in people's lives around us. And what I'm suggesting this morning is that we need to pray what I think is a pretty radical prayer. God, would you open my eyes? Would you help me see? Would you give me your glasses so that I see people the way Jesus sees people? Because I don't see people right now like he does. And I want to look at this little passage this morning, this little story in Matthew chapter 9, because I think it helps us understand the clarity with which Jesus saw people and what it is that we should be seeing when we look at our lost friends and work colleagues and family members and mates. And so the invitation this morning is for you to do an eye test. 
So you've probably already done that, I'm guessing. Just had a look at the eye charts and suddenly realised that you can't read all the lines and maybe you need to go to Specsavers tomorrow. But I'm more interested in you looking at, at, at the eye chart in Matthew 9 and doing a spiritual eye test on how well you really see the lost world around you. So that's the invitation today. So if you've got your Bible open, either physical Bible or you've got it on your phone or something, I want you to come to the end of Matthew chapter 9, and I just want to look at this little episode in the life of Jesus with you this morning. Matthew chapter 9, I just want to read it. It's just one paragraph starting from verse 35. Matthew 9, verse 35, as I look through the bottom of my glasses. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. That's it. That's our reading. It's only a little segment from Matthew's gospel, but it's one of the summaries that Matthew does. Every now and then through his story of Jesus, um, he gathers material together in big blocks, so he'll, he'll, he'll um, crunch together some, a lot of Jesus' teaching in one block, and then some of the miracle stories in another block, and then he uses these little summaries so he, he starts out in his gospel and tells us all the Christmas story stuff and then the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 3 and 4. And then at the end of Matthew 4, he does his first little summary. This is part of it here on the screen. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the good news of his kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. Now, that is virtually word for word for what we just read in Matthew 9. The description of Jesus' ministry. He taught, he proclaimed the kingdom, he healed sickness and, and illness. It's virtually verbatim. Um, and so this is the summary that ends that little section of Matthew's gospel, and it describes the large crowds following them. So at the end of Matthew 4, there's the summary, and then Matthew puts Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount together in the three chapters, and then he tells a number of the miracle stories in chapters 8 and 9 and clumps them together, and then this section comes at the end of that chapter 9. And it's another kind of, let's just stop and summarize where we're at with Jesus. So the first summary at the end of Matthew 4 gives this description of his ministry, and then it emphasizes the crowds that are starting to build around Jesus. We get to the end of Matthew chapter 9, where he's done a block of teaching and a block of miracles, and then he does this, other, this next summary. The summary this time, it has pretty much word for word the same description of Jesus' ministry, teaching, proclaiming, healing. But whereas in Matthew 4, the summary emphasized the crowds that are starting to grow, in Matthew 9, what we see is Jesus' response to those crowds. And it's in Jesus' response to the crowds that we realize something about the glasses that Jesus wore, if I could put it that way, uh, as opposed to the way that we see the world and lost people around us. And so it's Jesus' response. I'm not going to look at verses 30, uh, verse 35 here in Matthew 9. I want to look at Jesus' response in verses 36 and 37 and 38. 
And there's four things I want to touch on and show you that I want to suggest help us to test our eyes and how we see the world. The first thing I want us to see is Jesus' response to the crowds. Jesus' response. You notice that in verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That word compassion is a really strong word uh, in the original language. It means to have almost a gut response, a, a highly emotional response to the crowds. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was deeply moved. That's the idea we're meant to have. It's a real emotive term. It literally says his guts were moved. We talk about our heart as the kind of the place of our emotions. The Jewish people talked about the guts as the heart of our emotions. And so his guts were moved, which didn't mean his, his tummy rumbled or anything because he was hungry. It meant he, he was moved emotionally with compassion for these people. And whenever you see Jesus, when, it's, when his compassion is described, the emotional response he feels for people then results in action. So it's not just a meaningless emotion, it's a deep emotion that results him in, in him doing something. So for example, Matthew will use the same word in chapter 14, where Jesus has just heard that John the Baptist has been killed, and he gets away because he wants some time to grieve, and the crowds keep following him when he wants his space and time to just mourn his friend, his cousin, and the crowds come, and when Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he got really ticked off because he just needed some space. That's not what it says. When he saw the crowds, he, he had this guttural, deep emotional response. He had compassion for them. And so he feeds the crowd. This is the story of the feeding of the 5,000. In the next chapter of Matthew, same thing, the feeding of the 4,000 this time. But the words of Jesus, he called his disciples and says, I have compassion for these people who have been with me three days and have nothing to eat. You get over to Matthew 20. And two blind men call out to Jesus, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Matthew records again, Jesus had compassion. He has this deep emotional response to their need that results in something that he does. And in this case, he heals them. And when you stop and think about that in light of Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, he quotes this great passage of the Old Testament, the foundational description of God from Exodus, that Yahweh is what's the very first attribute that Yahweh himself uses of his own character. The compassionate God. And so Matthew's emphasizing as he describes the ministry of Jesus that this rabbi walking around is this God in human flesh, the God of compassion. And when Jesus sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. He is moved by their need. He cares for what's going on in their lives. And that's the first eye test for you and I today. As we see lost people in our lives, as we think about people, our friends, our work colleagues, our family members who don't know Jesus, the question is, and the first eye test to do is, do we see people with compassion? Do we see them with compassion? I, I, my hunch is that most of us would say yes. Certainly with, with many people in our lives, we care about uh, our family members who don't know Jesus. We care about our, the people we work with who don't have a relationship with God and whose life might be a mess. But do we have compassion on every lost person we meet? We meet someone who's just got out of prison 
Do we see them with compassion? When we meet someone who is racist towards us, do we see them with compassion? When we meet up with someone that's not like us, that's totally different from us, that we're kind of almost... Uh, want to move away from it, do we see them with compassion? See, it's, it's easy to look on compassion for some people, but it seems as though Jesus had compassion on everyone that he saw. But even the ones we know well, it's still good to ask. See, we can see our colleagues. We can see our family members. We know they don't have Jesus. But when we think about that, when we look at them, is it just fuzzy, blurry? Or do we see them and are deeply moved by the fact that they don't know Jesus yet? That's the first eye test. When Jesus saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. Is that how we see people in our lives? Second thing I want us to see in this text is, is Matthew gives the reason why Jesus has compassion, and it's, and it's an observation that Jesus makes of them, that they are lost. It says, when he saw the crowds, verse 36, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. This is picking up language of the Old Testament. Oftentimes, God will uh, describe the people of Israel, his people in the Old Testament, um, as, as, as sheep without a shepherd. It's like they're leaderless, and like sheep do, when there's no one to keep them together, they just kind of scatter and wander off mindlessly. And that's the imagery that Jesus is using. Probably the most famous passage in the Old Testament on this is Ezekiel 34 where Ezekiel the prophet gives a damning prophecy of the leaders of Israel who were meant to be shepherds to his people and have horribly abandoned that role. And God says through his prophet, you've not strengthened the weak or healed those who are ill or bound up the injured. You've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You've ruled them harshly and brutally. So they've scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. Later on in this chapter, God will turn around and say, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to judge you guys, and I will come and shepherd my people. It's a prediction of the coming of Jesus, God in human flesh. And so Jesus will stand up in John chapter 10 and say, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the shepherd that was promised in Ezekiel because your shepherds have gone wayward. But while this is a a wonderful statement about Jesus, it's also a pretty uh, honest statement about People, you and me, and all of our friends, we're lost. We're like sheep that are thick and go wandering off and do all kinds of dumb things in their lives without the shepherd who comes around us and who keeps us on the paths we need to be on. We get harassed and helpless. And as Jesus looks at the crowds, that's what he sees. That's why time and time again, Jesus will use the word lost to describe Sinners, people, you and me. He will talk in this famous parables in Luke 15 about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son. He'll say in, in Luke 19, where we'll be next week, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's you and me. We're lost. And if you're not a 
Christian, if you're maybe here just checking this kind of faith thing out and wondering about what it means to follow God, then this is how Jesus describes your life and the reality of where you are. You're lost. Now, that may be quite offensive to you, and sorry about that, but that's what Jesus says, that you and I, without him, are lost. We've wandered away from God. We're as brainless as sheep. We go our own way and do our own thing and end up in all kinds of trouble. And the invitation of Jesus, who came as the good shepherd, is to come back to him. He comes to find us, to have a relationship with us, to be our shepherd. And that's the invitation to you if you've never trusted in Jesus before. To acknowledge your sin and your brokenness, the the way that you turn away and keep doing your own thing, and to confess that and come back and put your trust in him as the shepherd who not only loves you and searches for you, but even laid his life down to pay for your sins and to rise again. But this is all of us. We're all lost. And as we've sung in worship songs today, we've been found by him if we're a follower of Jesus. But this is the, the description of where we are all at and what our lives are really like. So this is the second test, by the way. Do we see people with clarity? When you think about your friends and your family members and your work colleagues who don't know Jesus, do you see them and understand that they are lost. I was thinking about this this week as I was putting this message together, and I was thinking about some of the, the parents in the soccer team that, that our youngest son, Jaden, plays in. He's uh, been in this same uh, rep team for a number of years now, and so we've gotten to know a number of the parents who have been in there for a decent amount of time as well. And it just hit me this week, as I was preparing this and thinking about this eye test, and thinking, I'm not sure I see them clearly. I see them without God's glasses. I look at the, the parents of the kids who play football with Jaden, and they seem pretty successful. Life seems to be going pretty well. They seem to be pretty happy in their marriages, and you know their kids seem pretty decent, and they just seem nice people, and life seems to be pretty good. And it dawned on me this week that I see them, but I don't see them clearly. My, my, my vision is blurry because if I put God's glasses on, if I saw those parents like Jesus sees them, I would see lost sheep. I'd see beyond the success. I'd see beyond the, the good careers and the seemingly happy marriages and the comfortable lifestyle and I would see their lostness. And it would hit me just how desperately they need Jesus. And I've come to realize this week, as I've taken this eye test, that my vision is really bad. Because I theologically know they're lost. But I don't look at them and think about their lostness. I don't look at them and think about their destiny without Jesus. If someone like me doesn't share him with them. I don't look at them and look beyond the facade and beyond the success and beyond the image they portray to see their hurt and their pain and their brokenness and their sin and how far they are from God. See, Jesus did. 
Jesus looked out at the crowds and the reason he was so moved with compassion for them is because he saw how broken and sinful and needy they really were. And if I'm going to see like Jesus sees, if I'm going to pray, God, open my eyes, that's what I need. I need to see with clarity as well as compassion. The third thing I want us to see in this passage is what Jesus says. Verse 36 zeroes in on on what he saw, and verses 37 and 38 zero in on what Jesus says in response, and the image changes. Jesus makes this insight in, in the way he sets up verse 37. He gives us an insight that we may not naturally see. Verse 37, he simply said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He changes the metaphor now from sheep and shepherd to a harvest, grain or barley or wheat or whatever it was. And he changes the metaphor to say that the harvest is plentiful. As I look out across this crowd, Jesus says to his disciples, I am moved deeply by their lostness, but I also have deep hope because I know that the Spirit of God is at work in this crowd. He is already drawing a number of these people towards me and their souls are ready to be harvested for the kingdom of God. Often the harvest metaphor in the Bible is a negative one about God's judgment, but here I think this is positive. This is talking about people actually coming into faith and and coming into the kingdom and the family of God. And as Jesus looks across the crowd, he he sees on one hand their deep need and he feels compassion for that. But on the other hand, he also sees with deep hope that actually God's at work and a number of these people are ready to commit, to ready to trust, ready to follow. He'll say the same thing in the famous story of John chapter 4 where he sat down with a, a Samaritan woman at a well and has a conversation and she goes back to the town and tells them and the disciples come out and try to get him to eat and he's not really that interested in lunch. He says, I've got food to eat that you don't understand and they're like, yeah, you're right, we don't understand. And the crowds are coming out, and Jesus says these words in John 4, don't you have a saying, it's still four months till harvest. I tell you, open your eyes. That's our prayer. Open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. And I can just imagine the disciples like me looking out across the barley fields and going, you know what? They don't look ready to me. And Jesus isn't talking about the fields. Jesus is talking about the crowd of Samaritans coming. And what Jesus is saying is many of them are ready to believe in me as their Messiah. The third eye test I think this little passage gives us is do we see people with hope? I was actually just sitting there a moment ago and wondering if I should change that word hope to expectancy. It's the idea that God is at work in people's lives. It's the Spirit of God who convicts people of sin and of their need for Jesus. And we cooperate with God. We don't, we're not coming in cold. It's not all up to us. The Spirit of God is working. And I wonder if on one hand, do we see how desperate the situation is and how lost people are? Do we see that clearly? But on the other hand, do we also see with a sense of hope and expectancy that God is at work? 
American pastor named Kevin Harney, a good friend of a number of us here in New Zealand, has written a beautiful little book called Organic Outreach for Ordinary People. It's about sharing our faith naturally. I love this prayer that he writes in the middle of this book. God of the harvest, send us out. Open our eyes. There's our prayer again. Open our eyes to see that the fields are white for harvest. Remind us each day that the work is yours, but you invite us to be part of what you're doing in this world. I love this prayer. I love that idea in that that fourth line, the work is yours. In other words, God's the one who converts people. God's the one who changes people. We can't do that. We can't change anyone's heart. It's God who does this. That's what Jonah reminds us in Jonah 3, where he preaches through the city of Nineveh, pretty reluctantly, really just telling them about judgment. You can see him almost scowling as he does it. And God does this amazing work, and the entire city, hundreds of thousands of people, repent and trust in God. Was that because of Jonah? No, it's because God's at work. And I love what Kevin says. The work is God's. He's the one who changes people, but he invites us to be part of what he's doing in the world. But it's what he's doing. And so this idea of opening our eyes and seeing the harvest is the idea of recognizing the Spirit of God's already at work. Our job is simply to be faithful, to have open eyes, open ears, open mouth, ready to share when the opportunities come, looking for those opportunities. But he's the one who does the work. But I wonder if sometimes not only do we not see with clarity about the need of the people around us, I wonder if at the same time we don't see with an air of expectancy and hope, hey, God's already at work. A couple of people in the last couple of weeks have shared with me some cool stories about workplace conversations where someone has simply come up to them and said, can you tell me about your faith? I mean, talk about an open invitation. We're going to see if they can, they'll be willing to share those stories with all of us in the next few weeks. But God's at work. And as we look at our lost friends, do we look both with compassion on them and with clarity on their lostness, but also with hope and expectancy that God might be at work and we need to be ready? That's the third eye test. And then the fourth thing, the final thing in this little passage that I want us to see is what Jesus says at the end. There's the harvest is plentiful, guys, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus calls them to pray. Jesus says in response to this need, I want you to open your eyes and see the harvest, and then I want you to pray. And then if you look at the next chapter, the very next thing he will do is having told his disciples to pray, he then picks 12 of them, calls them apostles, and says, now you go. So I want you to pray, and I want you to go in response to this great need that you see. And that's the final eye test, I think. Are we seeing the lost people around us clearly? Do we see people with love? In other words, do I see the lostness of my work colleagues and my family members and my friends? Do I see the lostness of my mates at at school to the degree that I love them enough to do two things? Pray 
and then go to them with the message of good news. That's the eye test. In fact, as we think about our evangelistic temperature as a, as a church, as we use that kind of language uh, this year, as we start talking about that in our community groups and in other places, that's not a bad measure of, of how our evangelistic temperature is. Is my evangelistic temperature rising to the degree that I am praying more fervently and looking for opportunities going with the hope of being able to share the message of good news? Because if I'm not, then my temperature is still quite low. And we want to see that raise by one degree. These are the four tests. Do we see people with compassion? Do we see lost people with clarity that they're really lost? Do we see people with hope and an expectation that God's at work and so we want to see where he's working and dive in with him? And do we see people with love enough that we are praying fervently for them and we're ready to go to them with the message when God opens that door? See, this is a radical prayer. God, open my eyes. Because without God helping us see, we'll see people. We'll sit across from some of them at work tomorrow. We may sit down at the dining room table with them tonight. We may connect with them over the phone or Skype with family members. We may hang out with them at the gym this week or at a sports club that we're part of. We may see people, but they'll be fuzzy. They'll be blurry because we don't see them yet the way that Jesus sees them. And we need God to open our eyes, to give us his glasses so that we clearly see how lost they are. So that we clearly see and have compassion for their lostness. That we see with a hope and expectancy that God could be at work in their lives and we're ready and looking for that and so that we see with love, so that we are praying and we're ready to go. In a minute, I'm going to invite us to pray this prayer, Lord, open my eyes. But I want to warn you, don't pray this prayer flippantly. This is the first of five prayers we're going to pray over these next five weeks. And if we pray this, and if we really mean this, we may never be the same again. We may never be comfortable with blurry vision again. We may not like what we see when God puts glasses on us and helps us see well. And that may so stir our heart that our priorities and our very lives become radically different. So as, as we think about praying, God, open my eyes. I just want us to understand just how radical this prayer might be for some of us. I want to invite you today to take an eye test. Not this one, although if you can't see all of this, you might need to go to Specsavers. I want to invite you to take this one. I want to invite you just to look at that list. And it may be that you're actually doing pretty good. Maybe not 2020, but you may feel like on a couple of these, your vision actually isn't too bad. 
But I want to invite you just to consider whether or not you're actually in serious need of an adjustment to your lens in one or two of these areas. And as the band kind of comes up to lead us in a final song, just quietly as they do that, I just want to invite you to look on that list and then take a minute with God. Just come to him and confess that you need his glasses. You need him to open your eyes to see lost people the way Jesus does. just want to give you just a few seconds with God to talk to him about that. As I said in the journal, there is a five-part prayer that I've written. Five paragraphs that take each of these five messages in this series and just turn it into a prayer to God. And this is the prayer that I've written that's in your journal for this first message. God, open my eyes. And what I'm going to ask you to do, if this is your prayer today, I'm just going to ask you to stand to your feet. And I want us to pray this prayer together out loud. Rather than me closing in prayer, I want to invite all of us who want to make this prayer our prayer to pray it together and to come to God as a family.